0: Hey, welcome to night school. I stayed true to my word at least a little bit. I stayed at least a little bit true in that I didn't do an episode yesterday. I didn't do a November 3rd episode. And as as trucks go rattling by, as trucks go rattling by, start of a, a beautiful poem... But, uh, you know, I'm staying pretty committed to my word of simply being an observer right now. And that's important because there's so much potential provocation, and so much comes down to provocation. When you think about people who are not doing well, I mean, there's this idea that the world is out to get you. And while that is an extreme response that a lot of people believe, but it's still extreme, I mean, that's the thing, is just because a lot of people think a certain way doesn't make something any more or less extreme, and in that case, I think that is an extreme feeling to have, the idea that the world is out to get you. It makes me think of phrases like, this one was particularly popular, for whatever reason, this phrase was, maybe still is, particularly popular with girls from my generation, which is, fuck my life, I used to hear that all the time, people with good lives, too, not perfect, but good lives, I would hear, fuck my life, and what that that means is, you know, I'm being constantly provoked. And that's one of the unavoidable aspects of life, I mean obviously people have different degrees of provocation, some people do have lives that are much more difficult than other people. But that idea of fuck my life, which basically means I'm being provoked constantly, I'm living in a state of complete rawness, my nerves are raw. And there is outside provocation all the time, and part of life is dealing with that. Part of life is not being provoked. That doesn't mean something isn't provocative, but that doesn't mean you have to provoke either. So something can be provocative, and you can recognize the potential that it has to provoke you, but you don't have to be provoked. And there's plenty of opportunity to be provoked by outside elements, by things that are external to you. But so much of the provocation does come from inside of you, too. You manage to find ways to provoke yourself, and you don't realize you're doing it because you think that it's all coming from outside. But if you're left alone, I mean, it's one of the reasons why isolation is a killer, is that when somebody is left alone, when somebody is isolated, they will reach a point where they're constantly provoking themselves. So how much of the issue is really just, oh, the world's out to get me? And you're going back to a phrase like, fuck my life, fuck my life, you know, you go back to that. It's actually pretty accurate because you turn your life into something that is provoking you, you know, the things... I mean, usually when people say that, it's because, you know, someone cut them off in traffic and yesterday someone, you know, spilled coffee on them and uh, their boyfriend was being self-absorbed, whatever it is. So what they're talking about is a series of events in their life. And in that, ca- in that person's case, usually it's like they feel like everything is just one non-stop chain of shitty things happening to them. And maybe it's true, I don't know. But the idea of my life my life is this and recognizing that yeah it is your life it is your life that is filtering all this provocation that is absorbing all this provocation and the good thing about recognizing your own role in that is that you might actually reach a point where you realize how much of that provocation is you provoking yourself I mean it takes a lot of honesty though, it takes, I mean it's difficult, it's difficult for some people, I think difficult for everybody of course, but uh, you know I think with some people it's a little more difficult, because it takes a degree of honesty with yourself to actually say, hey, I might not be causing this, because it's not, it's not blaming yourself, it's saying I might be the one who is causing this reaction. I might not be causing the initial spark, you know, I might not be creating the shitty event that I'm responding to, but, you know, there's something with my own filter system, my own ability to filter this in a way that isn't destructive or isn't, isn't more destructive than this situation already is. So that's a side of it where you're filtering this event. And it's not about making a judgment on that actual event, but it's it's just your ability to filter it, your ability to process it. And it's, it's almost like having an immunity. You know, nobody has a perfect immune system where they're never going to get sick. But people do develop an immunity. They do strengthen their immune system and their ability to process... Malignant entities, mean and horrible bugs that get into their body, their ability to deal with that gets better, you know, and uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing that your body can do that, and people have all kinds of philosophies around that. You know, people have all kinds of beliefs as far as, like, oh, you should, you should. Uh, go head first, you know, don't wash your hands. Go head first into a diseased locale because your body will be stronger. Even though you get sick temporarily, your immune system will be stronger in the long run. And then now we're in a situation, of course, with the coronavirus, where the idea is that you want to avoid this at all costs. You know, and there's debate over that, of course. There's debate on every side and some people think they're all the w- some people think they're completely right on both ends of the spectrum and I, I can't imagine feeling that way. I can't imagine feeling completely right about Coroni Vi. When you're on Coroni land you're never completely right. But there's the idea where it's like, oh no, if you want a strong immune system, you have to, you know, go head first into it. And, you know, of course that makes sense, and of course there's an argument otherwise too. Uh, But, uh, you know, when it comes to other things, like non-physical, mental affliction... I think the same idea applies, you know, I was talking in the last episode about my approach to quitting drinking, which was to go head first into situations that were going to be provocative. To go to bars, to go to that Christmas party where there was just plentiful, expensive alcohol. And it's not for everybody, just like I would say, not everybody should try to get sick if they want to strengthen their immune system. Some people can't handle that as well. And so I I wouldn't say there's like some one size fits all, but I think it is something as you learn about yourself, you know, you can figure out what will, you know, strengthen your own system a little bit. And, you know, especially when you think about, I think you're thinking about that idea of provocation for one and recognizing that things are going to provoke you if you go into a situation thinking that you will not be provoked or that you're not capable of being provoked or that you play no role in the provocation that things just happen to you and you have no control over how you react like if a shitty thing happens you don't have control over that you know if you go into situations like that well I don't you know I don't know what to tell you if you can't own up to your own role in the process Even if it is purely a reactive role, recognizing that you yourself are responsible for your own reaction, and you could look at something like quitting drinking the same way, where it's like, oh, I'm in a situation where there's a lot of alcohol, and I'm trying not to drink alcohol, and if your immune system isn't strong, or if... You know, whatever it is, it, I mean, so much, so much of it, I think, comes down to what your natural disposition is, which is why I would never say, "Oh, here's here's a one size fits all solution to quitting drinking." Go be around large amounts of alcohol. I would never tell a random person to do that, but I do kind of have that approach. Where I'm like, I'd rather be provoked early. I'd rather be heavily provoked early on, and respond to that. And recognize that I'm being provoked and also recognize that it's me. I mean you look at that situation and I'm always hesitant to talk about the drinking thing uh, in part in part because of those rattly trucks you got those rattly trucks everywhere um, but uh, In part because, you know, I don't want this show to be... I I want somebody to be able to drink to this show if they want. You know, if somebody listens to this show and they like to drink a lot, as this show used to be kind of about, you know, as I used to do on this show, if somebody wants to listen to this show and drink a lot, I don't want them to feel, you know, either annoyed or bored with this talk about quitting drinking, but it's my show and it's a part of my life. But uh, with that, though, I do think it's a similar idea when it comes to provocation because what you have to realize in that situation is that while I do feel provoked, I'm surrounded by alcohol, which is something I like to drink, you know, I like to do, and even though I'm mentally done with it, there's a level of provocation there where it's a temptation, because you know, when you're being provoked, it is, it is sort of a temptation to give in. And in that situation where you're surrounded by this thing that you, you know, are, even if you don't still want it, you're used to wanting it. Because I would say that's the case for me in drinking, which is, it's not that I wanted to drink anymore, but I'm so used to wanting it At at that time. I was so used to wanting it that, of course, being around it is going to be a temptation and a temptation is a provocation. And, uh, you have to recognize that I'm the one responsible for that. I am being provoked. My own ability to filter this situation has nothing to do with the people who are pouring themselves drinks. You, you know, the people who are who are at the bar or at the Christmas party, you know, pouring themselves drinks, like those people, uh you know, they're just, they're doing what they do. They're in their natural element. You recognize that I'm the one who's in an unnatural position, unnatural to me. And so, really, those people, like, while their behavior might be provocative based on my unnatural vantage point, they're not doing anything to provoke me. And, you know, that sounds absurd in a way. Like I mean, that kind of sounds absurd, but if you've ever talked to people who have quit drinking, some of them see drinking as an offense to them, which is why you end up with prohibition. That's how you end up with the 1920s. That's how you end up with, with legal prohibition of alcohol, because some people think this thing that does cause harm, as well as fun but these people think this thing causes so much harm and it's, a, it's provoking me. So let's get rid of it. And I'd be very curious to see this. This would be really interesting to me. If given the option to outlaw alcohol, if given the option to ban alcohol, to have another prohibition, I'd love to see how ex-drinkers vote. Because, of course, I would be absolutely opposed opposed to the idea of banning alcohol, completely opposed to it, but I do believe there are some people who would readily, probably secretly, but readily vote for another prohibition, and I wonder if those are the people who are more, you know, their social life has been formed by things like AA recovery groups, which do a great service for people, of course, but I wonder how much of that is is socially enforced, because I've known people who have quit drinking, and I don't even think they had a severe problem, to be honest, and I I don't say that as an insult, it's none of my business. How severe somebody else's problem is or isn't is honestly none of my business, but just for the point I'm making here, people who... I don't really feel had a serious drinking problem and I don't like that competitive side of that because when I quit drinking you know I had somebody say you know oh you didn't really have a problem you know that kind of thing and so it's like you can always find somebody who thinks that their problem is worse than yours and your problem wasn't really a problem you can always find somebody people get competitive about everything people get argumentative and competitive about everything including drinking and not drinking But, uh, you know, so it's none of my business to say somebody did or didn't have a problem, of course. But that said, it's interesting that somebody I know who I don't feel really had a serious problem became one of the most devout, you know, social ex-drinkers. Like, what I mean by that is, like, their entire world became reinforced by this idea of not drinking. And that's one of the reasons why I am hesitant to talk about it but it is also just a, you know, it's something that I I feel the need to explain, and maybe I shouldn't explain, I should simply describe, I should follow my own rules here. Description and not explanation. But but anyway, enough of that neurotic, enough of that neuroses right there. You know, it is just interesting to me, though, how, like, there's this socially reinforced aspect to not doing a certain thing. That, to me, seems to... ...reinforce the idea of provocation, for one. Because the more that you identify with a certain group, the more that that group's values become your own, and if that group sees its own values in opposition to another group's, or an idea... Anything that could potentially provoke that group is now your own cause, and this of course plays out all over, all the time, when you're not simply responding to things that personally provoke you, but things that could potentially provoke people that you relate to, or want to relate to, and in the quest for identity, that's one of the key components, is things that you don't like things that, you know, are s- somehow oppose you, or you are opposed to, because with every set of likes, come a whole set of dislikes, you know, you develop these preferences, and you can go through life where everything you dislike is a provocation of some kind, you feel that way, oh, I don't like that, so it's provoking me, I mean, one of my biggest struggles was with just taste if something doesn't fit my taste it felt like it was a provocation and I felt tempted to give in with some kind of opinion like I remember being 15 years old and like someone likes a band and I'm like that band sucks you know why say that and it again goes back to that idea of oh you know if I don't if I don't acknowledge the rattly truck I don't acknowledge these. For whatever reason, the street I'm on is just non stop rattly trucks. And I hope you can hear that rattle. It's like a baby's rattle. It's like God's baby rattle. It's like if God had a baby, that's what his rattle would sound like. Um, oh, you think that's a semi truck, huh? It's the biggest baby rattle you've ever seen, you've ever heard. It sounds like a 10 ton piece of metal. It's really just a baby's rattle. Uh, But, uh... Yeah, it again gets back to that idea, though, of, like... If I don't speak the truth, the truth won't be known. And the absurdity of that, because, like, if something is so true... That you feel compelled to say it... If you believe so wholeheartedly in this thing that is true... It must be a pretty weak truth if it needs you to speak it out loud. Like, how powerful is that truth if it requires your little voice to amplify it? And that doesn't mean you shouldn't say things sometimes. If, you know, if you're a witness to something, if you're a witness to a crime... You shouldn't take that philosophy. You should be like, okay, I am I witnessed this. It's my job to speak the truth that I saw to help the greater good. So of course there are situations where you really should speak the truth, but there are many more situations where you think you are right, you think that you know the truth, and you think that you are one of the few who know the truth, Yet, this all-important truth requires you to speak it out loud, especially when it's something like, that band sucks. Because that's how I used to feel, and I think I probably still feel that way, but that's how I used to feel about things like that, where I was like, oh, if I don't point out that thing, if I don't acknowledge that I don't like that thing, and if I don't express it in such a way that communicates that I'm right, it's, it, the truth isn't going to be known. And so you're tempted to give these opinions. You're tempted to give these reactions. And... You realize, though, that you, know, you don't have to like something... for it to be good. You don't have to enjoy something... for it to be good at what it's doing. Like, imagine watching a sport you don't like... Like, I'm a big fan of football, so when I watch football and I say that player's good, what I'm saying is that player is good at a sport that I love watching. Therefore, the fact that that player is good is valuable to me personally because I enjoy watching good players. However, I'm not a big fan of basketball. I'm not a basketball fan at all. But that doesn't mean that there aren't good basketball players. It might not be personally valuable to me. You know, LeBron James might not matter to me at all. But I also recognize that he's an incredible basketball player. It's just that there's no personal value there. Because I don't enjoy the game they are playing, it doesn't make a difference to me. But I think that's one of the most important realizations you can have, is when it doesn't make a difference to you, or you don't even like the thing that the person is doing, yet you recognize that they are good at what they do. And sometimes it's undeniable. Sometimes you really, I don't know, sometimes it's a little less obvious when someone is good at something. Because when you get into ideas and creativity, like fortunately with a game, fortunately with sports, it's pretty cut and dry when someone is good or not good. You don't even have to be an expert. You know, I don't have to know the rules of hockey. You know, I don't, I, maybe you have, you have to have an idea of the basics of the game. You have to know that scoring a goal is a good thing. You know, because if you watch a hockey game and you're thinking, oh, it's a bad thing when they score goals, right? Wayne Gretzky's the worst player of all time because he scored so many goals. You know, if you have some sort of bizarro world take and you're that clueless or demented, or you have no idea how the game is even played, and, and you actually think the good things that happen in the game are bad things, well then you're screwed. <laughs> you're going to have no idea what sort of conclusion to make when you watch a game like hockey or basketball. But if you're at all sane you can watch that and just from the crowd's reaction i swear to god these rattly trucks and there's no reason for it that i can think of like this particular street i can't think of a reason why there have been non-stop rattly trucks like one of them was carrying logs and i guess this isn't the port like i'm near the water but this isn't the port where they ship logs and I've never walked down the street before and seen, I can't even think of one rattly truck. And I've walked down the street thousands of times, and I can't even think of one rattly truck I've seen before this, and I'm, it might be the same truck. I should consider that. I should consider whether that's just some mad truck driver repeatedly driving down the street and back. But anyway, maybe I just don't understand the game. I think that's it. I don't understand the game. The rattly truck uh, rally. (laughs) The rattly truck rally. I just don't understand it. I'm starting to get it, though. I'm starting to understand the rattly truck rally. And, you know, I think that guy's actually really good. That truck driver, he's really good at the rattly truck rally because his truck really rattles. You can tell someone's good at the rattly truck rally because the truck rattles. It sounds like a baby's rattle. A big metal baby's rattle. A big metal baby's rattle. Poetry. I should be a commentator. I think this is me establishing myself as the preeminent commentator when it comes to the rattly truck rally. The rattly truck rattle... I don't know. Enough. But yeah, now you can watch a game, just to finish that thought. You can finish... you can finish a game. Uh, You can watch a game and pretty easily recognize who's good by the crowd's reaction, if nothing else. You know, and I mean, a good way of understanding is that... understanding that is, is that person doing something that other people are trying to prevent them from doing and succeeding? And are they succeeding a lot? I think that's a good way... you know, if, if you were an alien... And you came to Earth, and you didn't know what sports are, you could figure it out just by being like, that guy is trying to do something that everybody else on the other team is trying to stop him from doing, and he is doing it over and over again really well. That's how you would know Wayne Gretzky is good, that's how you would know Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tom Brady, that's how you would know these guys are elite, because they're able to do something repeatedly that other people in the game are trying to stop them from doing. And uh Again, I I don't know. I mean, there's there's something to these trucks, I tell you. I'm losing my mind. Either either there's something to these trucks or I'm losing my mind. Maybe both. Maybe those aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe there's a little a little bit of truth to both those ideas. Um But yeah, it's an easy way of understanding something, is to be like, is this thing difficult? And if so, you know, is that person doing it with relative ease? It's how you can tell somebody's a good guitar player. But when it gets into creativity, it's a little different, and that's why creativity is such a strange discussion for me personally, because somebody can be incredibly proficient. Somebody can shred on guitar... And you can recognize that that takes a certain amount of skill, a certain amount of talent, practice, effort, and it's impressive. But when things get into artistic value, they change a little bit. And I mean, I guess you could see that in sports to some degree, in the way someone carries themselves. You know, in the, the way somebody throws a ball. Like you think about Peyton Manning's last season where... They won the Super Bowl, but he was a very small part of it. Even though he's one of the best quarterbacks of all time, and he's—you could see where his the the spiral and everything on his balls just was not very good. Like he his arm was not what it was, so it was kind of this ugly. But he was, but he, his mind was there. You know, he was able to succeed. It's not like he was horrible, but uh, you could just see when he would throw the ball that his arm was just not what it had been. He was old. He'd been injured, he'd been doing, you know, it's a repeat motion injury, your arm is going to, you know, by the time you're 40 years old, if you've been throwing footballs your whole life, you know, your arm is going to deteriorate. And so on a visual level, it was kind of ugly. On a visual level, you know, you watch this guy who's one of the best to ever do it, and it was kind of ugly, but yet he was doing what he needed to do within, you know, the system, within the game. And I don't know, that, That's. but it's interesting, though, when things get into art because, you know, I like things that are inept, but because I like it, is it truly inept? Like, I don't like it because it's inept, but there's some music I like by people who barely knew how to play guitar. They barely knew how to play guitar, but there's some sort of intangible element that makes it good. And what is that? I mean, it's intangible, so I, I really can't define it. But it's not as simple as, oh, they're playing the game really well. It's not the same as when you see somebody shred, and you're just like, wow, that guy can really do a lot. That guy really knows his way around a fretboard. So it's not that. But there is something impressive when you see somebody do something that you consider good against all odds and you know and that plays out in stories too like i mean speaking of football you think about rudy the movie rudy with sean astin which is a classic motivational thing where he's just he's on the bench he's a nobody he's not going to be a good football player and you know it everybody knows it but they finally let him in the game and he makes one tackle something that a good player does all game long And it's not the same as, like, patting someone on the head. You know, it's not like he's mentally impaired and you're just giving him a... I don't know, it's just... It's contrast. You know, like, every story is about contrast. And it contrasts with the impression you have throughout the whole movie that this guy, he's not good at football. You know, he's not a good football player. Objectively good. But the fact that he finally got his chance to play and he made a tackle created contrast. And it's inspirational when that happens. And sometimes it is kind of condescending where someone does something and someone sticks a lollipop in their mouth and pats them on the head. But there are other times where it's legitimately impressive. And I don't think that that really explains why I like inept music or inept art. You know, I don't think that, I don't think it's as simple as being like, Oh, you overcame the odds to do one good thing. Sorry, I'm breathing heavily. I'm going up a steep hill. Speaking of overcoming the odds, I'm going away from the rattly trucks. The rally is over. Um, but it's not like when I listen to, say, an inept guitar player who manages to convince me of something, it's not like I'm sitting there thinking, oh, wow, they overcame the odds. They learned how to play one power chord. Oh my God, they played a power chord. And they clearly are struggling to do it. That's amazing. You know, it's not like I'm coming from that place. There is some sort of intangible factor. There is something you can't quite define. And that's what makes it different from, say, sports. Where it doesn't matter how... It doesn't matter how intangible some aspect of a player's abilities is if they're not good at the game it really doesn't matter you know they might be a novelty you might think oh that guy tackles weird but you're not going to consider yourself a fan i don't know so that's one of the different ways it's one of the differences between you know sports and creativity and i like to compare those I make it a point to compare those things because I don't think they're as different as people make them out to be. However, that's one of the core differences, at least for me. Because there are some people, though, where they want to listen to stuff that the consensus believes is good. And I don't have any problem with that. I mean, that's why some people will make the argument oh, well, he sold a lot of copies. You know, some people will defend their taste by being like, "Hey, listen, this went platinum." Who are you to who are you to argue with a platinum record? You know, some people will take that approach. And you know, and I'm not even opposed to that. That makes sense. That's like saying, "Hey, Wayne Gretzky has the record for most all-time goals." You know, it's a similar sort of argument. Wayne Gretzky's won the most championships that kind of idea and i'm I'm not opposed to it i'm not opposed to that way of thinking because there is a logic there i mean it gets into audience because when someone sells a platinum record when someone sells enough copies to go platinum or something like that it's not so much that their skill earned that a lot of it depended on external things audience marketability it's not as simple as, you know, Wayne Gretzky scoring a bunch of hat tricks. But it is the same kind of logic, where it's like, no, this is objectively really good. And so, I can't fault someone for thinking that way. And some people enjoy the safety of that. They enjoy the safety of not having to explain why they're into what they're into, or why they do what they do. Because it's, it's received some sort of pre-approval. And there's nothing provocative, just to go back to that, I feel like I lost sight of this idea of provocation, which is probably a good thing, because I was using that word way too much. But it's it's not provocative when something has that sort of pre-approval. It's readily accepted why you're into it, and people can understand why you're into it, and there will be people who challenge that. There, there are people who hate things because they're popular, things like that, but, uh, you know, that's, I mean, when people do that, when people have some sort of response to something that's purely in response to other people's response, which happens a lot, and it's hard to avoid, I don't think you can ever completely mature past that, because I think we always want to feel like we have a special jewel. And feeling like everybody has that same jewel takes some of the fun away from that. So again, I don't don't think we should fault people for feeling that way because I have the natural urge to feel that way a lot where it's like, oh, I thought this was my special jewel or I thought this jewel was limited to only a certain group of adventurers and you find out that, oh no... This jewel is now being reproduced, and everybody has this, this jewel in their collection. I think it's totally natural to feel put off by that. But to get emotionally upset, which many people do, and I have, when I feel like it's not it's not just it's not just taste in things like art. It's also Ideas, But I think ideas are a little easier to let go of Where if you think something is a truly good and helpful idea You want it to propagate You want that idea to be spread as far and wide as possible Which is why the idea of propagation is so common in religion Because the idea is, you know, it gets twisted It gets twisted because it gets into this, like, save your soul Do you want to go to heaven thing? When really it's as simple as... These ideas have been extremely useful to me, and I think they'd be useful to you. And then, of course, there a group dynamic comes in. Like I was talking about with AA, talking about the recovery groups and things like that. A, a whole other group dynamic comes in, where people become afraid of people who aren't thinking the way they do. They become afraid or opposed in some way to people who don't believe what they believe. And that's just something that people naturally do, especially when they surround themselves by people who believe exactly the same thing and only listen to them and see anybody outside of that as lacking or dangerous. Provocative. Because, I mean, it gets into that, where you can easily go from being like, hey here's an idea that is very useful to me, and if, and if you're a spiritual person, that can be very difficult, because things transcend being simply useful. Things transcend being simply a good idea, and they feel like they resonate and impact your life on a much deeper level, and so you want to share them in that way. And that's... A dilemma, you know, as a dilemma to deal with that because you want to communicate in this way that is grandiose because it feels grandiose to you, but it really is just a useful idea to an outsider. And the more grandiose you are to an outsider, the less likely they're going to take it to heart, the more provocative you're going to be to them, you know, the more it's going to be a challenge rather than something helpful. And so that's always a dilemma in that situation, because, you know, something that is profound to me in a spiritual context can probably be broken down into some sort of self-help, you know, cliché. I mean, in most cases it can, because so many of these ideas can be expressed in so many different ways but sometimes it can it can seem like just sharing something and treating it like oh here's a here's a tip doesn't seem to do justice to your own feeling about that idea yet that's a far more effective way of transmitting the idea than telling them they need to save their soul which is inherently provocative and scares somebody into seeing things your way Um, so, you know, because I mean, that's a thing. Maybe I'll close that out because it kind of gets into the weak link, strong link thing where if someone can be provoked into reacting the way that you want them to react, like if you're out there provoking people, you know, and someone can be provoked into reacting the way you want them to react, that's just as bad as them reacting to your provocation in the opposite way from the way you want them to react you shouldn't be out to recruit people, not just into a group or into a way of thinking, but just into your life at all. You shouldn't be out to recruit people into your way of thinking or against your way of thinking through provocation, because to me, they have the same result. They, they cheapen the transmission, I think is how I would put it. Where it's like, okay, you've been provoked into agreeing with me. And that has as much value as you being provoked into disagreement. And then it comes full circle back to you, where your own ability to filter provocation, the endless, inevitable provocation that you deal with. But when you realize that you are provoking people too, that you are trying to provoke people into reactions, you also realize you are trying to provoke yourself even just in your inability to properly filter and manage provocation you are provoking yourself and so when you recognize that you are doing it to others you are doing it to yourself others are doing it to you and they are doing it to themselves you start to see the full spectrum of what that is you start to understand what provocation is and understand that it is inevitable and constant in many cases, especially in a world of information. I mean, nature itself, even if you get away from this abstract human world, where we look at devices with symbols that make us feel a certain way, uh, when you get away from that even, just nature itself will constantly provoke. But I believe in, you know, strengthening your immune system, developing a better ability to filter these things as you experience them first of all helps you understand that whole spectrum but it also, it's you know it's also a situation where you know you just your system's gonna be stronger. Your own system to filter that is going to be much stronger.